Welcome to the fifth quarter, Conversations Beyond the X's and O's. I'm Jeff Osterman, joined by Layson Perkins, and tonight's guest is Mike Irwin. I'll give you a little bit of background, but Layson, when it comes to leadership, you better pull out two pencils tonight. We are just going to learn and learn and learn. You know, Mike is the CEO, Character and Leadership Center. He's the co-founder of the Positivity Project, the founder, executive director of Team Red, White, and Blue, and probably the biggest uh, U.S. Army Reserve Lieutenant Colonel, and we thank him for his service. And Mike, we, uh, Layson and I have been excited this whole week about tonight. So thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Great to be here and looking forward to the conversation and where it goes. Maybe if you could just start kind of give a 30 second time out on the upbringing and your path to get where you were today. Absolutely. So yeah, I grew up in Syracuse, New York, and, uh, and neither of my parents went to college. So was one of those kids where they said, hey, we really want you know, our kids to go on to college. So um, you know, I played basketball. I played baseball, played golf, played, played a bunch of sports growing up, but also did a lot of work, did a lot of work around having a paper out, raking leaves, mowing lawns, shoveling driveways, and trying to build up that work ethic. You know, again, being a paper boy for five years straight, like all those things helped to shape and develop my, and mold my character from a young age that set me uh, into the place where I was then able to compete and get into the United States Military Academy at West Point, where I would go on, you know, for my college. You know, Mike, I, I want to start with you. Can you give me your definition of leadership? Let's yeah. start there. Sure. I think there's a, obviously, I don't think I know, there's lots of different ways that people define leadership. When I studied it in grad school uh, in 2009 to 11, I did my, uh, you know, my uh, thesis on leadership and the intersection of positive psychology and character and leadership. And I was surprised to find that academic researchers define leadership in over 200 different ways. Some of them were very, very similar. Some of them were very different. And so when you really look at how different leaders frame, what does it mean to be a leader or what is leadership? It's always very interesting to see how they position it. But uh, in my time at West Point, I had the incredible honor of being up close and spending a lot of time with Jim Collins. Yeah, good to great, built to last, you know, some of the most influential books on leadership and on organizational culture. And ironically, he settled on a definition that I also embrace as being my favorite and I think the most accurate definition of leadership. And it comes from a fellow graduate from West Point, class of 1915, uh, and that is General slash President Eisenhower. Leadership is the art of getting other people to do what needs to be done because they want to do it. Uh, and his was, you know, very similar to that, but that's more or less like how he framed it and described it. So I break it down into four parts. You know, it's an art, not a science. So it's the art of getting other people to do. Again, leadership is not you doing the work. Yes, we need to lead by example, but leadership is about getting other people to do the work. Uh, number three, not just any work, but the work that needs to be done. Anybody can get someone to sit there and eat some ice cream or sit on the couch, you know, and binge watch Netflix. But can anybody go out there and get people to come together to move the trees that have been knocked down in the storm? Can anybody go out there and get someone to stay in uh, late and put in the extra work? And then lastly, not because they have to do it, but because they want to do it. This is where leadership exists in its purest form, where people do what has to be done because they want to. Does it actually mean they like can't wait and they're chomping at the bit? Probably not. 
but it means that they're not doing it because someone has you know a boot on their back or someone is forcing them to do it. At that point, it's not leadership, it's really power, right? And so when we really talk about leadership, there is an element of inspiration that must be discussed at the end where we're talking about getting people to do what needs to be done because they want to do it. So that's my favorite definition and framework for leadership. Now, there's so many parts to that, all, all great. But the part I want to talk to about is because they want to do it. It could be a military leader. It could be the CEO. It could be a basketball coach. But when you have your own people buy into the game plan, there's nothing like it. It, it makes leadership a little bit easier. That's right. But maybe give me an example of good and bad of how to have people buy into that or the wrong way to do it. Yeah. So I think one of the things I would start with and say you know, around all this is that you, know, you can't compel maximum effort. You know, you, you, only one person knows if you're giving you know, all you got and it's you, right? So I think that's an important thing to start. Yeah. I, how you get there, I, I think like the, the negative side, the bad way of getting there would be manipulation. Uh, you know, there's a, again, a great quote by a guy named Simon Sinek. He talks about, there's really two primary ways that we change behavior. We either inspire it or we manipulate it. And so manipulation, right? The idea of pitting people against each other, you know, creating this fake sense of, um, you know, not just competition, but a sense of like, if you win, then he loses, right? And when you're on a team together, that's actually not uh, very often the case. Most of the time is like, you know, rising tides lift all boats. The whole, when the whole team is successful, everyone generally, you know, grows and gets better. So I think the negative side, the bad side you want to avoid is the manipulation side. In terms of, you know, the positive side, it goes back into that idea that, that framed your question, Jeff, and that is inspiration. You know, how do you inspire somebody to want to do or to bring positive energy to a hard task? And for me, a lot of this goes back to explaining the why. Why is this so important? Uh, because if you overfocus on just the tactical details of what needs to be done, it's often difficult to be motivated because the tactics of what you're being asked to do or what you need to do, like, aren't all that motivating. But when you connect it to the purpose, the broader purpose of the mission or what you're doing, then all of a sudden it starts to make a lot of sense. It starts to make a lot of sense. And you're like, oh, I get it. This is why I need to go all in, you know. Um, in the extra session or, you know, shooting additional shots or whatever it might be. It really is about the inspiration because while it might be very, it might seem very tedious to sit there and shoot 20 more free throws when you're really tired. Uh, it's absolutely critical because that's going to position your team for the victory in a game that might help you win a championship, right? So now I'm translating as a leader, a, something that you don't want to do shooting free throws when you're really tired at the end of practice to the fact that it might be the difference that wins us a game one day or wins us a championship. You know, Layson and I talk about old school, new school coaches, but explaining the why, is that something I don't think I grew up with it. I think either from parents or from teachers or from coaches, there was no explaining the why. Yeah. You know, in my mind, especially basketball, I figured things out quickly, but is that something new? Obviously, the benefits are yeah. great, but... Did you grow up with people explaining the why to you? Yeah, no, definitely not, not nearly as much. I'm, I'm actually with my son right now. I'm reading The Miracle of St. Anthony, uh, you know, by Bob, about Bob Hurley. You know, uh, Bob, Hurley, Bob Hurley certainly explained no why. Um, you know, but I think that 
it, it is interesting. I think times certainly over, you know, over, over the time of the past 20, 30 years, times have changed. You know, they call it new school, old school, whatever it might be. I do think objectively that explaining the why to people, and I'm not necessarily talking about in the moment, right? In the moment, I think you're coaching, you're giving direction. It's like, do this or don't do that. Uh, but I do think that, you know, uh, in the bigger picture of helping to connect the dots to people has become more important, especially as people are more distracted, they have more things going on and more things that can get in the way of them giving their best effort. Uh, again, like just think about all the distractions in the world today, especially through our phones that just didn't exist 20, 25 years ago, right? When I was growing up and I was a kid playing basketball or, or baseball. So I do think that um, as times have changed and evolved, that to not explain that why, um, you know, is difficult, right? I think you are going to be, you're going to be very, you're going to find it very challenging for you to get the best out of people through sheer push, right? Um, and look, I think there's a reason why Bob Hurley ended up retiring. I forget when it was about 2010 or something like that. Like, you know, a lot of people did move out of coaching, you know, at a certain point of time when they, when the way that they knew the way that they embraced was no, it was no longer accepted by the average player. Um, and do I think that's too bad? Sure. You know, I, I do because like having, uh, I had a Marine Corps, uh, Vietnam vet, Tom Nyland, coach Nyland was my baseball coach in little league, right? Like, you know, having people who are, you know, had that mindset, you know, was really powerful, you know, for, uh, and impacted me for the rest of my life. But certainly, uh, like inflation, right? Times change, right? Like, you know, it's real and it's going to happen and you can either fight it or you can embrace it. Um, and I think that ultimately, you know, uh, I choose to mostly embrace it uh, and then fight it where necessary, but trying to find that sweet spot. Mike, I think it's, it's very safe to say that um, Jim Collins's work, his books are recommended reading for, mm -hmm. for both, for, for anyone. I would have to put good to great in my top five. I think Jeff mm -hmm. can say the same thing. Tell us about that experience of working with him and how much of a paradigm shift was it for him to be on campus there and see how West Point builds leaders compared to what he was used to in the, you know, in more of the business world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Jim is obviously such a successful guy. Uh, people, you know, thousands of people reach out per year asking him to come speak or come do something. And he's got an entire team that fields those requests just to tell 99% of them, I'm sorry, it won't work out. You know, um, and, his, and his guidance to them is I want people feeling better, right, uh, about me and my work after they get to know than they did before they ever reached out. You know, I mean, that's just kind of like the, the caliber of thinking. When you talk about elite, uh, he listens to audiobooks on 3x speed. Um, you know, he took 48 hours long before it was cool to study your sleep data, you know, with an aura ring or a whoop. Uh, and, and he went to the University of Colorado in the 90s to learn how to get better at sleep. I mean, he's just one of these guys who is obsessed with greatness and, and lives it and walks the walk in, in his life. Um, you know, he approached West Point with, with total humility. He came in over and over again saying, look, I know a lot about the business world. I know a lot about leadership in that context but I don't know a lot about it here in the military. I don't know enough about West Point. And so we spend a lot of time asking questions and analyzing and trying to get smarter on how does West Point over a 47 month period teach young men and women how to be leaders? Uh, because as we all know, I don't care like how natural or gifted of a leader or how whatever you are, um, you know, 
you're you're only 18 years old, right? You're only 22 or so when you graduate, um, and you haven't experienced very much of the world yet, right? And so West Point, you know, carves out through this very intentional strategy, building range into cadets and future, therefore future officers, to get them ready for the world. And and so he just he was a student. He he studied it. He analyzed it. He got everything he could get his hands on. He wanted to understand how did West Point do this. And one of the biggest things is, you know, he uh, that I remember him really picking out was, hey, is there is there anything here where you feel adequate on every uh, on all of it? And of course, everyone's like, no. I mean, they make you take boxing and survival swimming and gymnastics and keeping your room clean and math and philosophy and history and physics and probability and statistics. I mean, they make you take such a breadth of classes as a cadet at West Point, and no one's good at all of them. Um, you know, no one's good at, 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 you know, at every aspect of being a cadet. And so a lot of it is about, you know, putting you into a lot of different situations and teaching you how to feel and to deal with that, those feelings of being inadequate when you're around talented people to your left and your right who are great swimmers and you're doing horrible, um, right? To you know, to learn how to box when you've never boxed in your life, to learn how to take a class in physics and you hate it, right? But you've got to pass it to graduate. So a lot of what he observed was that, that West Point, part of the magic, you know, the, 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 the secret sauce was in, you know, pushing cadets to be uncomfortable and to get into environments where they would have to deal with those feelings of, of inadequacy to learn from it and power through. Let's first, let's talk about the book, uh, Leading Yourself First. Talk a little bit about, I guess, the motivation and the impetus of writing the book and, and what was what was kind of the, the core ideas that you wanted to get across when, when putting this together. So back in 2009, I just finished up my third deployment to Iraq or Afghanistan, and I went to grad school to study psychology at the University of Michigan. And I read this uh, article that had been, uh, it started out as a talk that was actually given to the plead class at West Point by a guy named Bill Dershowitz. He was a professor at Columbia and at Yale, and he gave a talk about the power of solitude and specifically solitude as it interplayed with leadership. And it was a really powerful talk. Um, and, and I actually reached out to him. I found his email address. I reached out to him and I said, Bill, uh, you know, great article, awesome talk. I actually went to West Point, so that was cool. But bottom line, it was it was phenomenal. Um, can you walk me through like like why would you like can you write a book on this? Right? Because I was like, I shared this article with a lot of different people, and so many people responded, as in like, wow, thanks for sharing this. And and he basically got back to me and said, Hey, uh, appreciate that. I'm very flattered by that, you know, but I'm actually already working on on another book. Um, this is not the kind of thing that I would want to write a book on. So if you want to read that book, then you got to write it. Uh, and so I connected with uh, one of my brother-in-law's, uh, the, the, the federal judge, Ray Kethledge, that my brother-in-law was clerking for at the time because he was in uh, at Michigan for his JD MBA program. And uh, we agreed starting in 2010 that we should write a book on this. And, and that began a journey of really uh, six years of researching and trying to get it picked up by, by an agent or by a company or a publisher and finally having that happen. And then you know, it released in June of 2017. So basically seven years and one month after uh, you know, we first came together and said, we're going to write a book on this topic, you know, did it finally become available to the public? So it was a true act of love and of perseverance because you got a lot of people telling you, hey, that's a good idea. Nah, we don't want to pick that up. Nah, that's not going to be that success. You know, a lot of doubt 
like all along the way. So you got to really believe in the, in the book's thesis and then you got to stick to it uh, if, if you wanted uh, to have any chance of being successful because most people, to include those in the industry, are, are going to shoot it down. So one of the things I wrote down from the book was you know, a, you know, being, having a productive solitude versus an unproductive solitude yeah. where it becomes more of an escape. Talk a little bit about that. How do you, how do you balance it? Yeah, it's a great question. So there, there is definitely different types of solitude. Um, you know, sometimes you can use it, use it as like, Hey, I had a lot going on, you know, meeting to meeting call, like all, all this input, all this noise. Um, and, and you just kind of like detach and walk away right? Put your phone down turn the TV off, turn the computer off, whatever it is. And some, sometimes just sit there or go for a walk or just go sit outside on your deck, on your deck, right? And look at the stars or look, you know, wherever. Um, and, and I think there's power and there's beauty in that. Yeah, and that can be uh, productive solitude. But typically when we talk about productive solitude, and this really was my co-author, you know, who is an incredibly gifted writer um, and teacher and, um, in, in man of the law, but he talks about uh, he, when he would escape up to Northern Michigan to his cavern where there was no internet, no phone being at least, you know, 10 to 15 IQ points smarter. When you, when you strip away the distractions, you can think better. And uh, at the same time though, that doesn't mean that it's easy, right? It's kind of, I would liken it to like, you know, going out and, and running, um, you know, and trying to, and trying to run really fast. Like, uh, just because you you know what to do, hey, go run! Like it still is really hard. And when you when you rack your brain and you're really using solitude productively to think through a problem and analyze, um, that is uncomfortable. That is tiring. That is not the kind of like oh, I'm just going to sit there, right? So that's the big difference I think between typically how like we use solitude to restore ourselves and to allow maybe some creativity pop, you know percolate up. Versus the productive variety of solitude is like, okay, here's my challenge. This is the problem. Here's the case. Here's the facts. All this information racked and stacked up. And now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive in and I'm going to analyze, right? I'm going to think really hard on it. And I'm most likely going to put fingers to the keyboard or I'm going to take notes and I'm going to fill out an outline. Uh, and that's a very, very different thing than engaging in solitude for the sake of stepping away from the noise. This is really using that solitude to go to an analytically deep in uh, challenging place. I think I probably did some sort of solitude. I didn't have a, a a name for it. Coaching, you know, kind of before a game, I would shut the door and I would think if Layson's team is hitting transition threes, what's my counter going to be? Mm -hmm. And I probably didn't label it. It was more of mentally preparing myself for the what ifs. Yep. But when I read your book, I, I got so much out of it. And I think maybe take our listeners through in the beginning, the first, you know, is it awkward when you sit and, yeah. you know, maybe take us through that? Sure. Absolutely. 100% is for most people. So first of all, like there's definitely differences between introverts and extroverts. So I'm a big, big extrovert. So for extroverts like myself, it's super uncomfortable to sit in silence. Uh, and it's something like anything that you have to train, you have to build up the muscle memory to be able to do. For people who are more introverted, they tend to find it and gravitate towards it more. Um, as it pertains to basketball, specifically, I remember I talking to Coach Beeline about this. Um, 
he talked about like, you know, he basically would spend time in the morning essentially drafting up like every minute of the breakdown of the, of the afternoon's practice or the evening's practice. And he would spend a lot of time. Then he would come into his assistant coaches with after he had the, you know, the, the plan um, for, for practice. And then they would walk them through and kind of then get their input and their feedback. But he was the one who would develop the major muscle movements of the plan. Right. Um, and I thought that was always very interesting because you can only do that effectively in solitude. You can't do that while you're like surfing the internet and like, eh, well, maybe we'll do this or maybe we'll do that, right? It takes intense focus, right? To be able to come up with a good detailed game plan um, or practice plan. So, uh, but to your question, it is absolutely, I think for a lot of people, especially in the world today where we are accustomed to distractions, um, very awkward, very uncomfortable for a lot of us to, you know, to really be there. And we feel the temptation of like, hey, you might be you know, journaling or coming up with a game plan or whatever it might be, thinking through things. And if, it go, if it's been more than five minutes and you got your phone on you, almost every, people that I talk to, they like go grab their phone and like, ah, let's go check and see what's going on, right? Like the ability to stay with a problem and to focus and to remain focused on it, that is something that you know, is very difficult to do for, for most people in the world today because we have conditioned our brain to jump from lily pad to lily pad from moment to moment with all these distractions and all this noise so that the idea of going deep and focusing is very unnatural for most people. You know, one of the things that Bob Bodine shared with his two chairs book was in the morning, take five, 10 minutes, sit in a chair and I'm faithful, very deep in my faith, but I still found it awkward you know, looking at an empty chair and trying to verbalize gratitude and things like that. Um, it, it, my problem when I started is, again, I didn't have a phone. I didn't have anything near me. But I also would have 10,000 thoughts of what's going on. What do I have to do later? What about, you know, after school, the grocery list? I have so many things. Totally. Is there any tips to kind of ground you to that let's take a breath and, and stay focused yeah that the idea of like just the racing the racing thoughts through the head so well one thing is that people would often certainly talk about you know would be meditation and training and teaching your brain to be truly present um you know again very often we'll be in an environment and we'll be there and listen to someone uh we listen to a talk and all of a sudden we'll veer off so we know that when you study meditation that it's very natural for for unwelcome or, you know, just different thoughts to enter your brain that will try to rob you of being present in the moment. And I think that's important to be aware of that it's going to be unlikely that you're going to escape that. Um, and this is honestly why I think a lot of people are shun solitude or are afraid of it. If I could go as far as to say that they're like, it's like, I don't want to be alone with my thoughts. Like that's, that I'm not going to go to a good place, you know, so the, the, the negative self-talk that can happen in moments of solitude. What's the easiest thing you can do? Distract yourself. Pick up your phone. Start watching a video. Oh, my mind's off it. Right? Yeah. So. I, I think, again, someone that is outside of that circle, they see you with an empty chair talking to God, yeah. or they see you sitting just deep in thought. You know, they're wondering, yeah. you know, what's the matter with you? And I think you touched on it. I'm one, and, and I'm not great at it, but... I really need to talk to myself and not yeah. listen to myself yeah. because that's for me where I get the what if game, you know, what if the car doesn't start? Well, yeah. you know, it's kind of faith over fear, yeah. but is there 
you know, something towards that whole, you've got to live in, I mean, obviously with you, with positivity of just talking yourself through yeah. those tough times. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I spend a lot of time on something called the resilient culture initiative, um, where it's really the talking about this idea of self-talk and how important it is to be able to work through the negative thoughts and work through the doubts and all that. Cause we all have them. The question becomes, well, why is it that some people are, able to, you know, like talk themselves through it and other people, you know, ruminate and get crippled by the fear and the negative emotions. Um, and the reality is there's no simple answer here. Oh, well, this one person does this. Another person does that. There, there's definitely some genetics there. Um, there's definitely, uh, you know, some differences we have in from personality, you know, in between people that, that affect that. Uh, but I think a lot of it has to do with your upbringing. You know, a lot of it has to do with what books you read, what podcasts you listen to, right? Are you feeding your brain the kind of things that help you to be better at that self-talk or vice versa, right? Are you, are you, you know, spending so much time binge watching, you know, junk shows or listening to garbage podcasts or whatever, you know, that you're not feeding your brain the right stuff. So I think like anything, we have to nourish our brain with the right content, the right podcasts, the right books, the right conversation, the right mentors. And when we do that, we have the ability to then tap into, um, you know, more skill in doing things like talk, talking to ourselves positively uh, than than negatively. So I mean, there's obviously tons and tons and tons of you know we've called self help books, but it really is. There's a reason why so many self help books, you know, uh, because so many people spend you know a lot of their time in search of how do I get better, how do I get better at at helping myself to not just go into a dark place or a place of doubt and fear, you know? And, and I think that, uh, while I wish I had a, a shortcut or an easy answer, it's not, you got to work at it, you know, and you got to work at it really hard, much like anything else. If you want to be a good accountant, you got to work with numbers for a long time. You want to be a good coach. You gotta, you gotta do it. Same thing. Like you want to get good about, you know, how you talk to yourself, you have to put in the work, you know, and, um, it doesn't mean you're going to not make mistakes, but it means that when you do, you learn from it, you pick yourself up, dust yourself off and, and get back on it. The next opportunity that kicks you in the teeth is, is coming around the corner. So get ready for it. And, and then next time, you know, handle it better. Yeah. I really admire people that do it and I'm a work in progress and trying to get better, you know, and that's the big thing. If it's a parent, yeah, I want to be the best parent. I want to be able to relate to my teenage son. So I have to kind of get the knowledge if it's from books, from podcasts, whatever it is, to stay ahead of the curve. But I think I make a conscious effort. I talk to Layson a lot about starting to even journal more and to do things. But for me, it's, you know, I have my core values and what I believe in, but then I almost make it a game to stay positive that today I'm going to give three compliments to people and really make them smile, make them feel good. And like, I can check it off my list because I don't want something in my journal that I know I failed at. And for me, that's been able to help me, you know, journaling and then almost a checklist. And then, you know, when I look at it and it says, okay, compliments. Oh, I've done that. It's now incorporated into me. But is journaling, I think, is something new also that has gained so much steam. And maybe it allows you to talk to yourself instead of listen to yourself. Yeah, sorry about that. You know, we, uh, you know, we profile General Eisenhower and some other leaders as well. 
you know, who really use writing letters themselves. You might remember in the book, Abraham Lincoln, uh, we profiled him when he was really frustrated and angry, you know, at you know, some of his generals and um, General Meade specifically following Gettysburg. Like, why didn't you pursue? And, you know, he wrote like a really angry letter and he wrote that letter and then he sat on it and he never sent it, you know? So it was cathartic for him to get his ideas out and to, to express his frustration and his anger, but to think through it in a journal, i.e. a letter that he never sent. So, um, you know, Eisenhower did the same thing. He literally journaled, you know, to help him, you know, to crystallize his thoughts. So I think that there's a lot of power in this idea of, because ultimately to think, to write, you must think before you, you, again, you can't write without thinking. It's not possible, right? You can't go, ah, uh, like, unless you're going to, you know, have a bunch of gibberish, you have to think. And that's the great, the great power of writing uh, is that it compels thought. Yeah, I would say that one of my favorite books of all time, which is basically a letter to himself, is, is Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Oh, yeah. You know, it's probably the ultimate letter to oneself reminding you know him of how to maintain composure and how to approach his day. Mike, you mentioned there's four components to leading yourself. Out of those four components, is there one that you would put primary as, as the first thing first thing first that you have to focus on yeah. or is there is there any sequence that... yeah so yeah so in the book we break it down into four sections so there's four primary benefits of solitude for leaders clarity creativity emotional balance and moral courage you know i think that it really depends on the situation um you can make the, you can make the case for all four this is kind of like you know asking someone you know to pick of your four kids pick your favorite you know um, because I, I don't really know, a lot just depends on, on the situation. But I do think that like, the most inspirational part of the book is the moral courage part. When we profile Pope John Paul II, Martin Luther King Jr., and Winston Churchill, you know, and we talk about how important it is to tap into solitude um, you know, when you face criticisms. Criticisms, not just that I disagree with you, but that you're a bad person. And, and that is... That's, a, that's different, but I, I think the most practical benefit day-to-day -day for most of us is emotional balance. And that's really where, where my story was nested, you know, nested under there in the book. I think that emotional balance, especially today, it's like such volatility, ups and downs, and you know, an angry email or an you know, inflammatory post or a, you, may, you name it. I think there's a lot of that that happens in the world today. And Unlike, you know, Lincoln being frustrated by General Meade and, you know, writing a note that he never sends, like for us, like the flash to bang is a lot quicker. And, you know, you can see an, e you can see an email and if you, if you bite into it and you get angry and you hit reply and you start hammering away at the keyboard, right, um, and then hit send, I mean, it could be a matter of three minutes and you never gave yourself, you never gave your brain a chance to slow down to process it and say, wait a minute, I don't need to engage you know, in this, you know, this reply right now, you know, um, whereas you had a lot of time to be able to think about that, you know, prior, you know, but now in the, in the age of the digital world that we live in, you know, that a lot of that has been robbed, you know, from us and it therefore makes us very susceptible to responding emotionally. And as I joke with people, I say, how often do you, when you say something you regret, you know, does that happen when you are an emotionally calm? Almost never, right? Like we say things we regret, we do things that we regret. Most of the time, when we're our emotions have hijacked the steering, you know, the car and are at the steering wheel, 
you know? And so, you know, one of the things we talk about in there is that, you know, emotions, you know, they burn hot, they burn out. Like, it's like, it, it fogs up the windshield, but eventually like you can't see anything. You're like, ah, I don't know. And then eventually like it clears up um, and it doesn't take that long to clear up. So just pull over, sit there, solitude, engage in just some thought and some deep breathing and say, okay, I'm really mad right now. I'm really offended right now. I'm really whatever it is right now, but I'm just going to sit here, clear my brain, and then I'll respond. Right. And, and that's a big thing that we challenge leaders to do, especially. I want to go back to something we talked about earlier. And, and this was actually from a quote from Lieutenant Colonel Harold Bohr or Hal Bohr, uh, you know, who, who uh, the book We Were Soldiers was about him and his experience in Vietnam. He made the quote one time that leaders either inspire or they contaminate their environment. Mm -hmm. How do leaders contaminate the environment and how do we avoid contaminating? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways and in, in, there's, you know, when you start analyzing and thinking about the strengths and the weaknesses of leaders and all that, I mean, I think certainly you can contaminate it by um, being a hypocrite, not building trust, you know, telling, demanding one thing of your people, but then not, not, you know, of yourself. I think you contaminate it by being a micromanager and, and again, not trusting the people on your team enough to be able to do the work. And so you get into an oversight role, um, you know, so I think that's part of it. Uh, you know, I think in general, like when you don't prioritize relationships and people. So this is the title of my second book, Leadership is a Relationship. Um, it's really talking about the, the power and the need to engage in relationships and in, you know, positive uh, interactions with people. And so, again, contaminate the environment by allowing your own emotions to take the steering wheel and lashing out at people, you know, or, or saying things that are really uh, overly blunt, unnecessarily, you know, aggressive. Um, once in a while, there's a need, right, for like a legit, you know, turn it loose, Bobby Knight style, you know, kind of thing. But, you know, it should be very few and far between, you know. Um, and so, uh, again, you can contaminate the environment by, you know, creating that sense of fear uh, as the everyday normal, you know, versus, I think, um, you know, something that you use once in a while. Speaking of the new book, how do how do leaders lead now and build these relationships when we're having to do this through a Zoom, yeah, Zoom screen? Great question. I you know, I will tell you, Lason, I am. I spent a lot of time sort of philosophizing about this question, right? So the new book, you know, leadership is a relationship. How to put people first in the digital world, released a few months ago, and so I've been on a lot of podcasts and having this discussion a lot. You know, it is. At the same time that the book came out, like it came out basically on the heels of like all this metaverse conversation, you know, around the metaverse. And, you know, when you really study the metaverse, you know, it, it came from some book or movie in the early 1990s. It was actually a pretty like bad time, you know. Um, and so people started living this like virtual world. Uh, so it doesn't have like inspirational roots, the metaverse and, and now like Fortnite and e-gaming and e-sports and all these things where people are interacting with each other and they can pay money to go to a concert or wear a certain kind of shoes in a virtual world. You know, like, so this is like the metaverse has been underway for, you know, probably five, six, seven years. And now it's getting a whole lot of attention and investments and, uh, and focus put on it. But I do think that there's this fundamental question that we'll look back in, let's say, 10 years from now, just like as we look at the world now of 2022, and we look at how different the world was in 2012, 
uh, in so many different ways. Um, think about how different the world's going to look in you know eight, nine, ten years from now. You know um, how much human in person in the flesh interaction will it be? I mean, I don't want to be hypothetical here, but like there could be a thing where like you don't go buy tickets and go watch a game, right? Like the team plays like in a, in a sterile environment and they've got five times as many fans that are there at the game with, you know, they're actually at home on their couch or on their bed with their, you know, with their headsets that make them feel like they're at the game. You know, um, there's, there's a lot of like fundamental questions we have to grapple with, you know, to include how your, your question started off with connecting on these zooms and on these virtual chats. Um, like, like this is certainly better than email, Slack, and texting. Uh, it's better than a phone call, right? Like someone calls into like a talk radio show. Um, but certainly nothing can compete with the three-dimensional space of being in the same geographical space, in, on the same mountaintop, in the same room, in the same gym with people. And uh, you know, I was at the Virginia Tech Duke basketball game about a month ago, and like the energy in there was just unbelievable. It was so incredible. First live basketball game I've been to in a few years. But like my point is that there, there are some fundamental questions coming for people about how they are going to live and interact in the world, you know, as it gets more and more metaverse and more and more virtual, you know, and uh, there's no doubt it is more convenient for sure to stay at home and feel like you're at the game than to get in your car, to go drive there, to park, to pay money to park, to walk up the hill, to get your tickets, to wait in line, you know, to go sit down, to fight the crowd, to go to the bathroom, to go wait in line, to buy souvenirs, right? There's, there's a, that takes a lot of effort, you know, and you do it because you want the in-person experience to be rewarding, right? So bring this back and connecting the dots to leadership and relationships in life is those are the moments of life where we forge our, our relationships, where we get to really know people is at these in-person meetings um, and in-person experiences. So I think that leaders have to make some choices in the future. Like, it's not, I don't think a fork in the road and it's either this way or that way, but you're going to have to pick and choose how much and how intentionally do you engage in the real world uh, versus the virtual world. And I think that you'll see a lot of people meander and gravitate towards the, the virtual world. Um, you know, and I don't feel good about the data, what it would suggest, how that's going to affect people's happiness, well-being, and mental health. You know, staying on that, uh, in terms of leadership, you know, praising somebody, some may view it as you're kissing ass, you're praising them, this and that, where mm -hmm. I think praise can go a long way in drawing more out and helping, you know, you sell more widgets than you thought possible or making more shots or leading a, a team. But yep. It, praise to me is something that is still untapped. And I think more people are coming around to it, maybe. Yep. Gratitude. Absolutely. Gratitude and praise and recognition. There's a quote, something like this, like, you know, a person who feels appreciated will almost always do more than what's expected of them. Right. When someone feels appreciated, they absolutely, it just, you know, it speaks to them in, in a different and a more emotional way. Um, and they say, you know, what? I, I like how that feels being appreciated and being recognized. I'm going to do more of what it takes to continue feel to feel that way, you know. And so, yeah, absolutely. The power of gratitude, uh, you know, the, the power of feeling appreciated is, is absolutely enormous. And I think as leaders, you know, it's one of the simple things we can do. Sometimes it's just calling people out and saying, hey, you did a great job today. That was awesome. 
you know, they really appreciate and just singling someone out and saying, Hey, you, you went all in today at practice. You gave, you know, I saw it 100% effort the whole time through and set a great example for your teammates. Well done. Right? Like you can give praise for free, you know, and in minimal periods of time and the return on that praise um, is, is real and measurable. It is. And as we get older, you know, not only do we see, oh, I miss an opportunity to publicly praise someone, but it's also the other way when you know you're busting your tail doing a great job. Yeah, a, a sticky note, a note, a verbal call, a voicemail, something so simple that motivates you to do even better, to get it so much. And, you know, and I don't know if it's experience always. I think some people, it's just not in them. You know, your thank you and gratitude is your paycheck. You know, that's it. And uh, it's different. And I think the good ones, and you touched on it a little bit in the book, is more of instinct and then reading the room. You know, when, you know, you can, and I admire people that can go into a room, be comfortable if it's the president or the maintenance worker, and they just have that ability to connect. But. I, I, I think it's a fine line of instinct slash cockiness towards let me take a breath and see and read the room. Yeah, that's right. Spot on. You know, and, and I think that, you know, it does often, you know, have to do with, you know, are you going to lean in, right? Are you going to pay attention to people? Are you going to be self-aware? All those things that you just talked about. And so I do think, you know, a lot of it does require being intentional about it and thinking this is important enough you know, for me to commit my energy, my focus to be able to do that. Spot on. So I want to start and I know Layson will join me in some military questions. And yeah. there's so many real examples, you know, when you even bring up Abe Lincoln and I'm thinking, wow, I didn't expect that. Yep. But can you maybe talk a little bit about Eisenhower, Patton, friendship, relationship, but I'm still the leader, one of those kind of through your research, what you kind of came up with. Yeah. So, geez, I mean, there's so many powerful, inspiring stories from the research, you know, but yeah, I'd share, you know, when when it comes to General Eisenhower, you know, one of the things that was really interesting from him was that he, um, when, um, uh, geez, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now, um, the the chief of staff. um, Marshall? Marshall, thank you, George Marshall. When George Marshall called him, to the Pentagon right, when he was a one-star general and asked him, hey, how would you respond? You know, this is after Pearl Harbor, right? Rather than just jumping in and, and leading in with an answer, Eisenhower said, hey, sir, can, can you give me a couple hours to think through it? I want to think through my thoughts. That, that was really powerful and a great example of, of having the, the discipline and the self-awareness to know that if I just launched into an answer, and he was a big extrovert, so he probably could have launched into an answer, but saying, give me a little bit of space to kind of think through it. That made such an impression on General Marshall that, you know, because he's the one who ended up making all the decisions between that moment in late 1941 and, you know, 1944. I mean, we're only talking, you know, like a couple of years. He went from one star to five star general. And, and, and Marshall was the one making those decisions, you know, for on personnel about who got promoted to that, you know, higher general rank. So that was a really powerful and insightful story of like when someone asks you for your opinion on something and it's complex rather than just giving a half thought through answer, ask for a little bit of time to organize your thoughts. That was, that was really big. The other one I would share with you, Jeff, is uh, you know, General Grant. 
uh, you know, and we profiled this, you know, and, and there's, for those who might've seen this special on Amazon, there's a three-part special on Ulysses S. Grant on Amazon. It's really insightful and really powerful, but it talks about how no one had been able to cross the Mississippi, you know, at Vicksburg and no one had been able to figure out, no one could do it. And, and everyone like kept on doing the contemporary things that the Confederates expected. And so eventually Grant, you know, spent a whole lot of time in solitude late into the night, just chomping on his cigar and just trying to really think through, well, what am I going to do? I got to do something different. And he had this brilliant move of like, you know, going far south and then crossing the river at a different point. And rather than just, you know, turning and then going north and attacking from the south, he pushed deep inland, right? Uh, and then to the north and then enveloped them and, and hit Vicksburg from behind. But it was such a creative outside the box solution, pretty much all the military, you know, uh, strategy folks in there were like, this is not going to work. This is crazy. You're going to live off the land and you're going to go down and all, and then over. And then not just, you're going to, you're going to make this huge March. Um, no way. And, and, and of course it did. And it was one of the most brilliant, you know, military moves I would argue in, in, in history. And again, the clarity, you know, for this creative solution came to him in, in solitude. Let's talk a little bit about modern leadership. I know for for a lot of people, there's probably some some names out there that maybe most people would not be familiar with. So who yeah. is one leader right now that you would recommend that one should maybe study or look at? First one I think of is, is Stanley McChrystal. Would, yeah. you know, would would be the first one that jumps out to me. Is there someone else that you would that you would recommend? Oh, geez, yeah. There's there's a lot. I mean, there's just you know some tremendous people. And you know, the reality is that when it comes to leadership, you know, um, sometimes people leading in some environments and they're tremendous, and then they get to another environment and they struggle. You know, um, you know, I think that you know, certainly on the military front, um, you know, and we profiled a bunch of people like in our new book. There's a guy named Colonel Mike Sullivan, you know, who is simply phenomenal. Um, you know, he is a, a hard charging, very aggressive guy, but he knew, he knew that, you know, to be able to get this major operation approved, you know, uh, in, in the Helmand province, which the British were responsible for, he had to really work hard and build relationships. Uh, and he now commands, um, a, uh, basically a, uh, what's called the SFAB, but it's basically one of the units in the military where they, they, tr you know, they train and then, you know, prepare to deploy you know, uh, soldiers around the globe to be able to support in training missions. But he's a, he's an example, a, a phenomenal example. McChrystal, no doubt. John McChrystal is you know, a, a bigger, more household name because he's written multiple books and he founded the McChrystal Group after his time in the military. Um, you know, you've got General Joe Votel, who, who is the CEO of Ben's Business Executives for National Security. Uh, you know, he endorsed our latest book and it was really, you know, phenomenal. Um, you know, but the only other person I would, you know, I would, uh, you know, kind of talk about from the military is we also profiled um, Chevy Cook, uh, who's a lieutenant colonel in the army right now. And he talked about the failure resume and that everybody, you know, has a resume of all the things they've done, all the things they've accomplished, but no one has a resume for the things where they didn't, where they failed, where they made mistakes. And, and, and he talked about the power of using that as, you know, the reality, right? The reality is not, we're not just this polished resume of all the things we've accomplished. There's a whole lot of things that we have not accomplished or that we've failed or places where we've applied to, but been turned down, you know, and recognizing that as part of like how we see ourselves and how others see us is very, very important as well. Okay. Advice time. I'm a young subordinate. I come to you and I go, I, I don't trust my, my leadership above me. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I'm in an environment where I'm not seeing leadership. What yep. advice do you give? 
Um, you know, I think that when you're, you find yourself in an environment, uh, and this will happen quite a bit, you know, where you don't you know, necessarily trust your leadership is, so first of all, I think a lot uh, about this idea of personal courage, you know, and, and if that's really the case, I think you have to have a conversation with people. And it's very easy in the world today to, to sit there and, you know, um, send a text to somebody that you work with, you know, or talk to somebody and, and complain, you know, about that leader. Um, you know, I think that, you know, um, we have the ability to sit there and to, and to have a conversation and to raise the issue, right? So a lot depends on, hey, do you just not trust someone because, you know, they're, they're not very confident? Or do you not trust them because there's a deeper character issue there, right? Um, and often what you find is that, you know, th there's a difference, you know, and, and, and that, you know, we often will assume, ah, oh, this person, this leader is not good. And you go, well, no, there just might be a misinterpretation there. So I think it is important to approach for, you know, we would say in the, in the military, you know, or at West Point, approach for clarification. Hey, let me really understand, like, what's going on here. Um, you know, and then I would say, you know, beyond that, and beyond having a transparent conversation, I'd also always encourage people to be introspective and look in the mirror and ask, okay, why do I have this assessment? Right. Uh, because sometimes the assessment's accurate and sometimes it's partially accurate and sometimes it's wrong. You know, um, and sometimes we don't have all the facts. Sometimes we don't have all the, you know, the information. And so that leader above you might seem not very trustworthy or not someone that, you know, that inspires great confidence in you. But, you know, he or she is spending a lot of their time and their leadership energy managing, you know, a lot of the stuff that they're getting from higher headquarters. Right. So I do think it's important to kind of ask yourself and, um, and really, figure out, okay, well, why, why might this be happening? But then again, to have the personal courage to move forward and have that conversation. Okay. I, Jeff and I always like to kind of throw out some, I, I guess we'd call it fun questions, but just yeah. kind of pick your brain, recommendations, things of that nature. I'm going to start with this one. Great list of historical figures in the first book. If you could, if you had to pick one, and I know it's, you know, yeah. we're, we're asking you to pick, you know, a favorite child, but yeah. if you had to pick one that you could spend extended time with yeah oh uh, yeah I mean, definitely abraham lincoln i mean he i mean what a, I mean, what a story right like you know the losses in his family at a young age all the lost elections all the failure and yet he still maintains you know the the perseverance and the character to be able to succeed and then he he leads the nation through like this awful civil war i mean no doubt abraham lincoln okay how about a good army, Navy, let's kidnap the goat, yeah. any good story you've come across? Oh, geez. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, you know, by the way, I live on a farm with 32 acres and we have some goats and, and, and I, I'm not very impressed by goats, the animals. They're, they're a bunch of troublemakers. And, um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I don't have like, any personal experience like going and hijacking or kidnapping goats, but I do know like there's definitely been numerous times that's happened where, you know, cadets will go in the middle of the night and they'll find a way, you know, uh, you know, to get the goat and to get the goat out of there and then take pictures with it and, and all that. But, you know, that's, that's always one, you know, when you see it happen, it fires people up. Um, I tell you like the other thing is that's probably more relatable was, you know, when we would have some, you know, midshipmen from the Naval Academy or, or we call them Air Force Zoomies, um, 10 of them per semester would be at West Point. Um, and they were juniors and we would go there and like, we would kind of go in there and, and like just, you know, ransack the room, take them. The, this is when, when mouses had, you know, balls in them, you know, take the mouse, ball, do everything you possibly could switch the keyboard. So they like anything you could, you know, to, to confuse them and, and make their week a little bit more miserable. Uh, we, we took great pleasure in that. So. And being in the South, of course, we have great rivalries. If it's Duke Carolina on the basketball court, 
Army, you know, uh, Army Navy to me. Yeah. Is there anything better than that Saturday Army Navy game? Uh, you know, I don't think so. I mean, just, of course, I'm biased. So that's why I say I don't think so. Uh, certainly, I've been to some pretty amazing rivalries, you know, Michigan, Ohio State and football. I've been to that game. Um, you know, I've been to some other rivalry games. But yeah, the Army Navy, just because it's still so pure in many ways, it's such a, a true rivalry, you know, um, that it, it kind of sets it apart in my eyes. And, and, you know, most of the players in there, they're not going on to play on Sunday. And it's like the last for the seniors, it's for almost all of them, it's the last game of their career. And, they're going on to do things much more serious, you know? Um, so I think that all those factors added together is what makes it what it is and makes it so unique and special. Mike, what is the best book that you would recommend to describe the West Point experience? Oh, geez. Um, you know, there, you know, there's a bunch of them that have been written, um, you know, about, you know, West Point, um, you know, one called the long gray line, you know, um, you know, there's been a handful, but, but not that many, right? Because they only give certain people access. And I forget the name of it right now, but it was written by a reporter formerly of the Rolling Stone, um, you know, talking actually about my class, the class of 2002, because we were the bicentennial class. So West Point was founded in 1802, 2002, you know, we were the 200th class. So, um, you know, I'm drawing a blank on the name of that right now, but, um, but yeah, like it's, uh, you're on mute, Jeff. I think, yeah. Was it absolutely yes, American? absolutely American? That's right. Yeah, good yeah. book. Yeah, great book. And, and Huck Finn was one of my classmates, and he was the long. That's his real name. Well, his name is Reed Finn, but um, you know, like uh, it was it was a phenomenal book in terms of like a real look at the profiles of the ups and the downs, and you know, uh, in in the journey at West Point. Obviously, we want our, our listeners to to make sure they get your books, but any other books that you would recommend that that you like that you feel like really resonates with you and, and really matches the message that you're, that you're, that you're sharing with others. Yeah. I think that there's so, you know, so many books I'm, I mentioned before reading the, you know, the miracle of St. Anthony, you know, I'm a big fan of atomic habits by James clear. Also a real big fan, um, you know, of the alchemist, um, by Paulo Coelho, which is much more of a fictional story, but so inspirational. It talks about the power of dusting yourself off when you get knocked down. Um, and the most recent book that I've read that's really interesting, you know, is Range by David Epstein, really talking about the importance of being well-versed and not being super narrow in your focus, but having and expanding your horizons and how important that is. So lots of different, um, you know, books that kind of come to mind. But yeah, my first one, Lead Yourself First. Second one, Leadership is a Relationship. I love how they both, while yes, they're very much laser focused on leadership, they are, are also really applicable to life. And that's a big part of the focus of the book is to, uh, I, would, I would put both of these books under what I would call like the umbrella of being like a tech philosopher. Is, is so I, really, I really think aggressively about the world in this digital age and in the technology driven world that we live in. How do leaders need to lead differently? What are the different challenges that they face and what tools can they turn to? And more importantly, what mindsets can they turn to, right? So in that first one, it really is about thinking, reflecting and going inward, you know, and, and how important, how the information age has made that harder to do. At the same time, the second book talks all about how relationships, you know, and Simon Sinek writes about this and talks about this a lot, but relationships are, are under siege. You know, and it makes it harder to lead when you don't have relationships and confidence and trust of the people that you lead, right? And so both books really kind of apply a thought process to how to lead and how to live your life in this information age that we find ourselves living in probably forever. 
you mentioned podcast earlier. Any any particular podcast that you like that really is important to you to that it kind of helps you as you kind of formulate your thinking and you kind of put together your philosophy just not only for yourself, but maybe as a father, as a business leader, uh, yeah. as a you know, as a as a person. Yeah, you know, I, I don't subscribe to like any particular podcast like all the time. Um, just do you know due to time and the, every time I you know listen to a podcast that you know that's not engaging in solitude, right? So I, I do try to really like limit, you know, the amount that, that I do. And so I tend to listen more to like Michael Gervais finding, you know, finding mastery podcast. I find there's some be some great, really interesting episodes. Um, when some of my friends that I might know, so I know Apollo Ono, he's a brilliant, like phenomenal thinker. Um, so when he's on a podcast, I like to listen to, to hear what he has to say. Um, Jim Collins has been on Brene Brown's podcast and, and a few others. Um, you know, so I do think it's, for me, it's often much more about the guest. Um, and, and I want to really hear how the people interviewing the guest, you know, approach somebody that I either know or whose work or how their thought process, you know, works. So Gervais does a phenomenal job at really dissecting it and analyzing and getting into the mind, you know, uh, of the guest. So, uh, less about the, the specific podcast and more about trying to find, you know, those guests that I really want to tap into, um, how they think and what they've done. Mike, one other one. I can tell you've probably got a bunch. Give me your favorite quote. Oh, geez, yeah. Um, you know, uh, I remember having hanging up in my locker, um, you know, or in my my room. You know, it was it, when I was growing up. I had a whole. I had like you know the don't the don't quit poem. You know, I had you know um, you know the quote from John Wooden. You know, uh, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. You know, uh, that was like printed out and hung up in my closet, you know, as a kid growing up. So I'm a huge quote guy. So long before you could save it on computers and all that, I, I had a book and I would write down, I would hear a quote of like, ooh, that's really good. And I would write it down in my little book, you know. So, you know, that one from, from Coach Wooden was just so powerful. Um, you know, as I've gotten older, I think I kind of have an appreciation for maybe some of the more you know, deeper, like, you know, paragraphs instead of just like one quote, um, you know, but yeah, there is definitely way too many. I've got I've got a long list of, of quotes that I'll often share on social media and talk about. Um, but if I had to pick one, I would go with that. You know that that one's always kind of stuck with me from Coach Wooden. You know, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Right? You've got to you got to be ready. Whether you're going on a podcast or whether you're going, you know, to have a conversation with someone or you're answering emails, whatever it may be. You know, making sure you're, that you're prepared and ready is super important. It truly is timeless. Maybe share with our listeners where they can find you, social media, anything else. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you can uh, – so I'm on, you know, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, and Instagram. Uh, Irwin RWB is on uh, Twitter and, and Instagram, and I'm on just, you know, LinkedIn. You can find me at Mike Irwin. And, uh, you know, I've got uh, MikeIrwin.net, you know, uh, is kind of a, is an overview of the various things that I do and that I'm involved in. You know, uh, we didn't talk much about it, but I've – Co-founded a private independent Catholic high school here outside Fort Bragg. Almost all of our students are, you know, the children of military or veterans. Um, that school really focuses on character, leadership, and resilience, uh, and building that in our students. Um, you know, so anyways, I do that as well in, in, in the Army Reserves and still do some work there. So I got a lot of different irons in the fire. Um, and the most important one for me right early is my faith. You know, I'm a practicing Catholic, and I'm also you know, 
my wife and we've got five kids, you know, 11 and under, and we live on 32 acres. So uh, every day is busy. It's intense. And uh, that's the way I like it. Reminds me a lot of my time at West Point, but it's, uh, it's also, I, I think the, I, the, the way we're called to be, I'd, I'd rather rust or I'd rather burn out than rust. <laughs> so, you know, uh, some days I do definitely feel burnt out, but uh, even on those days, I feel really good uh, about the work that I'm doing and uh, the chance to, to see another day and, and to make a difference, you know, uh, in people's lives. Yeah, there's, you know, the good news is, Mike, we're going to have to have a part two because there is so much more that we couldn't really get to. Today was so much leadership, but some of the projects you're on and and, and Layson and I talk about faith and family so much and to get a perspective from someone with your background of military turning, you know, to so many other projects and helping pay it forward you know, you're doing it not just through your books, but but more practical. Layson, so we're going to have to lock him up for another round. No doubt. No doubt. Would love to have him come back and, and talk a little bit more about character development with, with students and, and just uh, really do a deep dive on that. Because, I mean, in essence, that's what we're doing as coaches anyway. Totally. In, in, in the long term, it's more about developing the character versus the skill set of shooting a jump shot or being able to, to run a pick and roll. That's correct. Absolutely. Well, this has been great. This is just uh, so much for all of us. And I'll, I'm going to re-listen to it tomorrow morning on the way to work and keep writing things down. But uh, again, Mike, thank you so much. This has uh, been the fifth quarter conversations beyond the X's and O's. And I'm Jeff Osterman with Lisa Perkins. And tonight's fabulous guest was Mike Irwin. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. It was a great conversation.